You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. I am Father Jonathan. I'm one of the priests here at Resurrection, and I want to welcome you to the worship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this morning at Resurrection. I want to extend, extend a special welcome to you if you're a guest this morning. We are so grateful to have you with us this morning, and uh, we would love to get to know you. So please stick around. We have like amazing coffee out there, this awesome pour over thing. Many of you know that already. Uh, we would love to have the opportunity to speak with you, so please stick around and join us after that. Right now, we are in a season in the church's calendar called Eastertide, the season of Easter. And during Eastertide, we are exploring a series called All Things New. And what we're doing in that series is we're walking through the lectionary readings in Revelation. And we're exploring what it means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead changes everything. Here at Resurrection, we don't just explore the, res- the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ one day a year. It's in our name, right? We should probably do it more often than that. We actually explore it for an entire season. We have 50 whole days to celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, an entire 50 days of celebration of this fact that changes everything. As our own sacristan, Grant Grist, loves to say, ain't no party like an Anglican party. Because an Anglican party don't stop until it's right to do so. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's, not, it's not the right time to stop, though, yet, because we are only on week five of Easter. We have several weeks left to go. So we're going to keep celebrating, and we're going to keep confessing the wonderful way that Christ's resurrection transforms and transfigures our hearts, our relationships, the very cosmos in which we live. So last week, Father Sean took us to Revelation chapter 7, in which John tells us that a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, stands before the throne of God and praises him for his salvation. And this week, we're turning to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 6. And here's what John is going to tell us in this passage. That glorious vision of the nations, all of the nations, nations that formerly were at each other's throats, were engaged in a mortal combat against one another, in mutual hostility and recrimination. Those nations that are now in communion together before the throne room of God, God is going to bring that vision to dwell with us. I was talking to Davis this morning. Davis is a Greek ninja, in case you didn't know. And he told me, this word that God will dwell with us, right? It's the same word that we talk about when we talk about the tabernacle, right? God is dwelling with us just like he dwelt among his people in the tabernacle. That's what we have to look forward to in the resurrection. That is good news, people, right? Give me an amen to that. That is amazing stuff, right? I mean, God is going to tabernacle with us. He is going to pitch his tent with us, among us, and dwell with us. I mean, this, my friends, is the unshaken foundation of the Christian faith. I mean, if this is not true, let's go home. Let's do something better with our time gathering here, right? Uh, let's play golf. Let's go do something else. This is the unshaken foundation of the Christian faith. That a reality that is more real than the one that we presently experience this morning. I mean, I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Maybe you're having a really hard time. But a reality that is more real than the one that we are presently experiencing right now is going to come and is going to transfigure everything that we experience. It's going to bring the divine life that Jesus Christ carries in his very being and is going to flood our reality. That is what is going to happen. 
You know that scene at the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, when disciples are huddled in the, in the upper room and the door is locked, and Jesus just kind of like walks right through? Like, how is it possible for him to do that, right? I mean, is it that his resurrected body is like kind of ghostly or phantom-like or more insubstantial than the door so he can just kind of pass through it like a, like a, a ghost or something? No, that is not at all what's going on. I mean, when I was a kid and I was in elementary school, I had a science teacher that kind of tricked us. He took a big bottle and he filled it with rocks. And he was like, he was like, is it full? And we're like, yeah, it's full of rocks. And then he took some sand and he poured sand over the rocks. The sand just kind of like filters around over the rocks and it fills it up. And, and he's like, is it full yet? And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure this time it's full. And then he pours the water over the sand, right? And it kind of covers the sand. And we all learn at this point, okay, no, no don't say it's full because it's not full. All right, that's exactly the wrong way to think about Jesus' body, okay? His resurrection body. It's exactly the wrong way. Because the point of that experiment is that it is always possible to fill the bottle with more insubstantial substances so that it's never quite full, right? But that is not remotely what's happening in Jesus' resurrection body. That's not what it means to have a spiritual body, which is what Paul calls Jesus' resurrection body in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What it means to have a spiritual body is that somehow, in a way that we really can't narrate, we can't empirically sketch it out, Jesus' body is more real. It's more material than the door. He can pass through it because compared to the resurrection body of Jesus Christ, the door itself is insubstantial. The door itself is wisp-like. It's like a cloud that he can walk through. And that's how we also need to be thinking about the throne room of God that God is going to bring and cover our reality with. That is the place to which Jesus' resurrection body ascends, the throne room of God. And so we have to think about this throne room as more real and more substantial than everything we think of as being solid and material. Our hope, guys, our hope is material hope. Everything that we think of as realistic, this world of competition and scarcity and death and decay and entropy, it's going to be revealed for, this, for the phantom for the wisp that it really is when God's kingdom comes in its fullness on this earth, when he dwells with us as human beings. I mean, it is an abysmal failure of Christian hope when we spiritualize this vision. We say, it doesn't have anything to do with bodies. It doesn't have anything to do with the material and the concrete circumstances of our lives. Our hope, friends, is dramatically material. Christianity is the earthiest of religions. The Christopher Hall writes this, God plainly likes stuff, water, bread, wine, birds, blood, trees, rocks, zebras, lions, cells, stars, caterpillars, comets. I mean, you get the picture, right? God, all of this, he loves it. God is no Gnostic. Do you guys know what Gnosticism is? Gnosticism is a a perennial temptation for Christians. It is a false substitute hope for the material embodied hope that Christians profess. It is a hope that says, this material stuff, it's not quite up to snuff. It's fine, but it's not as good as spirit. Spirit is where the spark is, and we have to liberate the spark out of this material world so that we can be free, so that we can, be, we can, we can have the kind of hope that the Bible promises us. That's not true. Gnosticism is false. It is dramatically false. And the early church rejected it decisively and firmly at every point where it raised its head. 
Flannery O'Connor, who's the great literary saint in my book, 20th Century, obviously I, I believe that because I named my daughter after her, says something that is emphatically true. It is the virgin birth, the incarnation, the resurrection, which are the true laws of the flesh and the physical. Death, decay, and destruction are the suspension of those laws. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Death and decay is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm always astonished, she says, at the emphasis that the church places on the body. It is not the soul, she says, that will be resurrected from the dead, but the body, glory. The resurrection of Christ seems the high point in the law of nature. That puts, it, puts the point exactly right. Jesus' resurrection is the high point of the law of nature itself. All of creation was straining and groaning for that one moment of Christ being raised from the dead. And it has happened. And what we wait for now, patiently and in hope and in great pain, is for that resurrection to transfigure the world that we see and experience and to unfold it all in its glory. I mean, friends, this is the future that we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Every week here at Resurrection, pray the daily office, which I recommend to you very highly. You will also pray it every day, and it will begin to inform your own prayer life and your own practice of devotion. It says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we pray. So we are praying, actually, Revelation 21. God, make your dwelling among us. Let your shalom, let your peace cover everything we see, everything we experience like a blanket. But we're not simply praying that he would make this a reality someday, that the circumstances that we're praying for are something distant that we can hope for when everything is done. We're actually praying that this future would make a home among us right now, that we would be transformed by the Holy Spirit so that it could be said of us, look at how they love one another, like the gospel says today, right? Look at how they love one another. It must be the case that God dwells with human beings. It must be the case. I mean, if we want to know, what does it look like when God shalom comes in our midst, when, when God comes and he dwells with us by the power of the Holy Spirit, when this future breaks into our presence, all we have to do is turn back to Revelation chapter, chapter 7, where Sean took us last week. What happens when God's shalom comes and pervades our reality is that God, God's grace creates a people for himself out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. That happens. Look at verse 2. If you want to understand of Revelation chapter 21, if you want to understand God's passion for the reconciliation of all peoples of the earth, just look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. What is this New Jerusalem that's also a bride? It's kind of mysterious language. It's symbolic language. But John goes on to tell us in verse 12. Okay, we didn't actually read that this morning, so, so you know, I'll have to narrate a little bit. But um, in verse 12, he says that this New Jerusalem has a great high wall. And on the top of that wall are perched 12 angels. And on its gates are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the wall has 12 foundations on which are written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What are we talking about here? What are we talking about with this New Jerusalem? The community that God creates for himself out of all people. 
The new Jerusalem that John is describing for us in Revelation chapter 21 is this whole people of God, founded on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, continuous with the work that God did in Israel, among his people in Israel, and on the foundation of the apostles. I mean, this is the bride that Christ cherishes. This is the bride that he says, when it comes to being in its fullness, it's going to look like this. It's going to look like nations that were in enmity with one another. In communion with one again, with one another again. It is like the reversal of Babel, but on God's terms, right? And, and in the story of the Tower of Babel, humanity says, We're gonna build this ourselves. And God says, No, you're not. And he scatters them and confuses their languages. In Revelation chapter chapter 7, and then again in chapter 21, what we're seeing is God putting it back together again, saying, This is how it's supposed to be. You had the idea right, but you tried to do it under your own power, your own steam. I'll show you what it looks like. You can accomplish this. Only my Holy Spirit can accomplish this. But when the Holy Spirit comes in our midst, it's exactly what it looks like. It's people being brought back together again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The enmity being put aside. All of the conflict being put aside. And us being put to get back together again as a people. I mean, this is the bride that Christ cherishes. It's the bride that's bought with the price of his faithfulness. The bride that he feeds with his resurrected body and his resurrected blood. The book of Hebrews says that Christ paid for our salvation with prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears. He offered his own humanity back to God. And he says, he says, I will buy my bride with my body. He offered his own body for our sake to buy us back from our slavery to the power of evil and the power of death. We are unbelievably, unspeakably precious to him. The third century theologian Origen puts it this way. For the thirsty, he sends a spring of living water from the wound which the spear opened in his side. From the wound in Christ's side has come forth the church, and he has made her his bride. Do you understand? Do you understand what Origen is saying? Do you understand the magnitude of what's happening here? Christ offers himself for us, and out of the wound in his offering comes the church. It comes, comes we who are the church. And he makes us his bride. And he tells us that we will be perfected. And we will be made exactly what we're supposed to be. And even now it's possible to experience the first fruits of that. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, here's what the cross accomplished. It smashes the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. It, makes, it brings the nations into the fold. But it's not just the division between Jews and Gentiles. There are no divisions between human beings that are to be respected anymore in the kingdom of God. We cannot take any loyalty that's higher than our loyalty to Christ and his church, his baptized body. Have you ever heard the expression, blood is thicker than water? A familiar expression to you? You know what that expression means? It means that kinship matters more than the waters of baptism. That is blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Water, baptismal water, is thicker than blood. And we have authority this morning from the book of Acts and the book of Revelation to show for that position. Baptism creates the whole new community of God. The bond of which is greater than any bond that human beings create for ourselves. Look at what Peter says in the, in the book of Acts from our reading this morning. He says, he describes his vision, right? I mean, the sheet lowered down from heaven and all manner of animals, clean and unclean. And God says, kill and eat. He's like, what? What in the world does that mean? And he realizes suddenly what it means. He says, 
John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, God gave the same gift to the Gentiles as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who is Peter to stand in God's way? Peter's a faithful Jew, but who is he to stand in God's way? If God says the Gentiles are in, then the Gentiles are in. If God says the dividing wall between human beings has been broken down in the gospel, that means the dividing wall between human beings has been broken down in the gospel. Who are we to stand in God's way? Who are we to make the church into an affinity group? Our culture really desperately wants us to turn the church into an affinity group. But we are the church of Jesus Christ in whom the dividing wall has been broken down between Jew and Gentile, between, between all the races, between all of the sexes. It has happened. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, there is no longer slave nor free, male nor female, the kingdom of God. The dividing wall has been broken down, y'all. All we have to do, what our job is, is simply to obey, is simply to give ourselves to the thing that has already been made reality in Jesus Christ. The great midnight theologian John Howard Yoder says it best. Christian unity is not to be created. It is to be obeyed. You understand? We don't make this happen. The Holy Spirit makes it happen. What we do is we get the privilege of being God's instrument to communicate this reality to the world. Hey, the dividing wall has been broken down. Will we obey? Will we be people of obedience, people of faithful discipleship to Jesus Christ? Will we value the bond of unity that the Holy Spirit has created over all other bonds? Over the bond to our social class? Over the bond to our race? Over the bond to our sex? I am technically a millennial. So maybe I'll speak to the millennial generation now, of which I am a part, and say, do we value this more than our Facebook feeds? The, the feeds that the logarithm of Facebook says, I'm sorry, Twitter tells us that uh, we are supposed to value. Are our politics going to supersede the bond of loyalty that we owe to the body of Christ? If we're going to be obedient to Jesus, that cannot be the case. We always have to look to the person. It is the person who is of infinite worth. And if this person has been baptized, and if this person has professed faith in Jesus Christ, then they are more precious, they should be more precious to us than any other bond, any other loyalty, any other thing in the world. Y'all, we have to sacrifice for one another in the body of Christ. We have to say, your interests, they matter every bit as much as mine in the kingdom. And so I will give myself to better you, to, to make your life better, to make your life flourish. That is what we are told by the power of the Holy Spirit today is, is what we are supposed to do as Christians. That's the work we're supposed to give ourselves to. And that is what it looks like when God comes to dwell with humanity. We're coming now, you know, to the table of God. And he will dwell with us here as he will dwell with us eternally. We're going to be fed. We're going to be nourished so that we have the power to be this people of God. The people of God that love one another, that people will look at and will say, Surely, here is the place where God dwells with humanity. Feed on Christ by faith this morning in the Eucharist and be transformed by his sacrifice so that you too can have the power to be the dwelling place of God humanity. Become in this meal what you are supposed to be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to take some time to let the Holy Spirit speak this message to us. 
You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.